Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm not going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so suck in that one. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Welcome to the Forgotten 11. I'm Chris McGlynn. You may know about football in Manchester, but you probably don't know about this team. First, please follow the show on, for, on Twitter at ForgottenXI and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Five-star reviews help others find the show, and how cool would it be if you were the one who was able to introduce these women to the next Mia Hamm or the next Abby Wambach? You can share the show on social media and tell a friend. All right, on to Manchester. Manchester, England. It's a city that's world famous. Even if you're not a fan of football, you would know that they have a football team. Probably Manchester United, founded in 1878. More recently, maybe you know Manchester City. Manchester founded its first football team in 1863. And there are dozens of teams in the Manchester area. In 1886, Manchester hosted the first meeting of the International Football Association Board, or IFAB, which is the group that creates the rules of football around the world. If you're trying to figure out the VAR rules last season or last World Cup, it was the IFAB who created them. Manchester seems to be one of those places that is synonymous with football. They were playing from the beginning. The city has hosted every major tournament at some point, and also every major European football tournament. They were the host to the 1966 Men's World Cup. From the outside, you get the impression that there must be a football monument on every corner, that every resident is somehow involved. You get the feeling that in the football universe, Manchester is more than other places. As if what happens in football in Manchester is more important, more powerful than what happens in football in other places. It is. Corinthians FC was a men's football club based in London. They played from 1882 to 1939. The club's constitution declared that the Corinthians would not compete for any Challenge Cup or any prize of any description. They believed that a gentleman would never commit a deliberate foul on an opponent. They only played friendly matches, so they never won any titles. They wore hand-tailored uniforms. They embodied the highest standards of good sportsmanship. If a penalty was called against them, their goalies would not stay on goal to stop the shot. In the 1880s, Corinthians fielded the first black player at an international level. And they were very good. They frequently beat teams that had just won FA Cups. In 1904, Corinthians beat Manchester United 11-3. Manchester United's worst defeat to this day. 
England's team in the 1880s was largely made up of Corinthians. In 1894 and 1895, several matches were played where the entire English side was Corinthians. They toured the world, bringing football and fair play to places that had never seen the game. The Corinthians were the definition of sportsmanship, gentlemanly amateurism, and fair play. They merged with another club in 1939. In 1949, Percy Ashley was a scout for the Bolton Wanderers, a referee, and a father in Manchester, England. His daughter, Doris Ashley, was a teenager, and she loved football. She seemed to always have a ball at her feet. Her father could tell that she was good and that she could be great. But it seems that she may not have had many friends. See, she was at least partially deaf. Some accounts say that she was completely deaf. Others say that she could hear from one ear. Hearing aids barely existed at the time, and those that did were large tabletop machines. I don't know about you, but I don't know more than a couple of words in sign language. And especially with children, people can be wary of people who are different. You can see how a deaf kid might have trouble socializing and making friends. Percy Ashley was not going to let that happen for his daughter. In 1949, there were apparently no women's teams or girls' teams in Manchester. So Percy Ashley founded the Manchester Corinthians Ladies Football Club. Being a football scout and a ref, he definitely knew his football. And the Dick Care Ladies had to be something he knew about. The Manchester Corinthians were not going to be some casual, just-for-fun team. The Corinthians would train seriously and play seriously. Like the Munitionettes and the Dick Cares Ladies, Corinthians would raise money for charity. Manchester Corinthians soon inspired other women in the area to start playing. There would soon be dozens of women's and girls' teams in Manchester. Corinthians took players as young as 12 and women in their 20s and 30s. They played at Fog Lane Park. The locker room had no running water, so after training, the women would take buckets of water from a nearby pond to wash up. Sometimes they would have to break through the ice on top of the pond to get to the water. They played every Sunday and trained most days, regardless of the weather. They trained in rain and snow, and then cleaned up with icy pond water. This by itself was probably enough to keep many casual players from playing with the Corinthians. Now remember the English FA ban is in effect for the Corinthians. So founding a women's team and playing was going to be just as difficult as ice cold baths. But Percy Ashley, Doris, and the rest of the team were up to the challenge. So much so that like the Dick Care ladies before them, the Manchester Corinthians will become world famous. Over the next decades, the team and the support staff would play an important role in overturning the ban in the 1970s and eventually in the founding of a modern women's team you've probably heard of. Percy Ashley and his training staff took the Corinthians training seriously. They put the women through the same drills and exercises 
men's teams used. And just as important, the coaches made sure the Corinthians knew tactics. Ashley was a fan of attacking football. He made sure that the players knew what each position was, ways to combine players for attacking plays. He used attacking midfielders. He may have even had players play in other positions so they understood each position better. Ashley said that a 1 or 2 nil win was great, but a 9 nil win was better for the fans. So, yeah, the Corinthians could be described as bloodthirsty for goals. While there was no women's league at the time, there were plenty of tournaments. By 1951, Manchester Corinthians had won the Southern Cup, the Manchester Area Cup, the Sports Magazine Cup, the Roses Trophy, the Midland Trophy, the Odeon Trophy, the Bellevue Trophy, and the Festival of Britain Trophy. And they didn't just win, they absolutely dominated other teams. There's one report of a match that they won 36 nil. 36. But as has always been the case with women's football, it was often difficult to find other teams to play against. So Ashley created a second team called the Nomads in 1957. Sometimes the Nomads were known as the All-Stars. But this allowed them to always have an opponent and to combine players from both teams if they did find an outside opponent. If you're a careful listen, listener to the, this podcast, I mentioned once there was a Women's European Championship in West Germany in 1957. There's film of it, and there were large crowds. The European Championship was organized by the International Ladies Football Association, based in Germany. So if you speak German and want to help out, please get in touch. I don't know much about the International Ladies Football Association, but I do know this. In 1957, the Manchester Corinthians went to Germany to represent England and become arguably the first Lionesses. They played against Austria, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and hosts West Germany. Bert Trotman, a goalie from Manchester City, traveled with the team to Germany and served as their interpreter. Before we get to the tournament, I've got to tell you a little bit about Mr. Trotman. Bert Trotman was a World War II veteran, except he fought for the Germans. In 1944, he was captured and sent to a prisoner of war camp in Lancashire. Even though the war ended in 1945, the prisoners were not sent back home immediately. In the camps, Bert worked and played football. When he was finally released in 1948, he didn't want to go back to Germany. He stayed in England and worked on a farm and played amateur football. Eventually, he was offered a contract with Manchester City. Remember, the war has only been over for a few years. Man City fans flipped. They complained, we're putting a Nazi in goal? The fans soon realized he was a pretty good goalie. By 1956, he was awarded Player of the Year just before the FA Cup final match against Birmingham. He was the first goalie to ever win that, that award. In the 75th minute of the FA Cup match, he dove to save a ball and collided with an attacking player. He took a hard knee in the neck and was knocked unconscious. Subs were not permitted at the time, so when he woke up, 
Trotman remained in goal, later saying that he did feel a little bit out of it for the rest of the match, but he also made several saves. Three days later, when he had an x-ray taken, it turned out that he had five dislocated vertebrae, one of which was broken in half. So he won the FA Cup with a broken neck. It's not entirely clear why Trotman joined the Corinthians in Germany, but part of it that was that he was recovering from a broken neck, and obviously he could speak German. So back to the tournament. I don't really have anything. I have a short clip of teams playing. Check the show notes for a link to it. But the final was played in West Berlin between host Germany and the Manchester Corinthians for England. Perhaps 40,000 people watched in the stands. Corinthians beat the German team 4-0. Now think about this. Percy actually founded the Manchester Corinthians to teach his daughter about football and to help with her disability. Just eight years later, Doris Ashley and the Corinthians became champions of Europe in front of tens of thousands of fans. If you were Percy Ashley, what would you do next? The Corinthians and their sister team, the Nomads, had raised thousands of pounds for charities by 1957. And it wasn't just local charities. They raised money for national charities. But this changed in 1958. The International Red Cross contacted them, invited teams to play charity matches in Portugal, in stadiums of prominent men's teams like Benfica. In 1959, they played in the Netherlands against women's teams from Harlem and Utrecht. The Corinthians had conquered Europe. In 1960, the Red Cross realized just how popular these teams were. The Red Cross asked them to tour in South America for six weeks. It didn't exactly work out that way. In May of 1960, the Corinthians and the Nomads traveled to South America and arrived in Caracas. The Corinthians and the Nomads would participate in what was billed as the first international tournament of women's football from May 14th to the 22nd. They would play Odeca and Independente from Costa Rica. One thing that surprised the players were the crowds. Most matches saw crowds of 40,000 or more. Off the pitch, they were a sensation. Fans followed them in the streets. And in the stands, the fans went crazy for the women's teams. The final match saw an attendance of 56,000 fans. I haven't found the score, but the Corinthians won the tournament. What was originally supposed to be a modest six-week tour was now going to be three months. They visited 22 cities and probably played in at least 17 of them. They visited at least Venezuela, Colombia, British Guyana, Suriname, Trinidad, and Jamaica before returning home. The crowds were huge everywhere they played, and so when they got home, they felt a bit let down. They had gone from celebrated international stars playing in proper stadiums to playing back in a city park. But the Corinthians and the Nomads had caught the travel bug. They would continue to play matches in England during the fall, winter, and spring, 
that now each summer they would travel abroad to play charity matches for the Red Cross and other international charities. In 61, they toured Italy. They played a match in Milan in front of 80,000 fans. In 62, it was Ireland. In 63, the Isle of Man. In 65, the Corinthians went to Tunisia. And probably because of cultural difference, differences, women's football was unpopular there. That tour was a flop, but the Corinthians were still becoming international superstars. The reputation with charities and with fans was growing. In 1966, they decided to tour Morocco. They traveled over 3,000 miles on this trip, playing in front of sold-out stadiums everywhere. And then, in 1967, Percy Ashley died. A woman named Gladys Aiken took over the management of the team. It was a huge task. Between the international travel, the domestic matches, and organizing with charities, which now included the Red Cross and Oxfam. In 1968, there was a new tournament called the Deal Ladies Tournament. 50 teams would compete. So that's more than 500 women. At this point, it seems the FA ban, number one, isn't really working, and number two, it's really just denying women's teams any financial support. Only the rare teams like Corinthians and Nomads can thrive. Here's the manager, Gladys Aiken. We would love to invite foreign sides to come here, but there are problems. Where would we get the backing? There is no lack of sponsors on the continent. The Corinthians won the Deal Ladies Tournament. The final score was 9-0 to the Corinthians. The Nomads had made it to the quarterfinals. In 1970, the Corinthians and the Nomads were on the road again. In June, they traveled to Stade de Rems, France. The new newspaper said it was a, a tournament with Czechoslovakia, England, France, and Italy. But remember, FIFA doesn't recognize the women's game, so the teams are really the Corinthians, the Nomads, Turin, Juventus, Rems, and a Czech name team called Kaplich. The final match was Juventus, which was a fully pro team with a proper league, against the Corinthians. The Corinthians won 1-0. The Corinthians and Nomads affiliated with the newly formed English Women's Football Association around this time. And after the ban is lifted, the WFA organized the women's teams, with more regulations and rules about how the teams could work and play. It seems there were a few international trips after Rams in 1970. By the time the English FA organizes a proper women's team, at least some of the Lionesses are Corinthian alumni. Former Corinthian Sylvia Gore scored England's first, first FIFA-recognized goal against Scotland on November 18, 1972. The match ended 3-2 to England. Eventually, the Corinthians and the Nomads split into different teams entirely. One was called Benfica Beacons, another was Manchester Red Star. In 1988, Manchester Red Star became the official women's side of the men's club Manchester City. The Corinthians and the Nomads 
became international football stars. The more than 20 years that they played raised the profile of the women's game around the world and helped to convince FIFA, UEFA, and finally the English FA to lift their bands and help create the first official Lionesses team. And just as important, the Corinthians brought young women onto the pitch, showed them the world, and taught them how to conquer it. So the next time you're watching Man City in the Women's Super League, remember it all started at Fog Lane Park with Percy Ashley and his daughter Doris and buckets of ice-cold pond water. Just before I recorded this show, I got a message from Margaret Shepard and Margaret Whitworth, and then another message from Jan Lyons. Who are these women? They are Corinthians, and they are eager to share their stories with you. So as soon as I can, I'll be sharing their stories on this show. Don't forget to leave a review and share the show wherever you can. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.